You're listening to Real Health with me, Carl Henry, in association with Activia. Activia offers a range of yogurts that help support a healthy gut. Your gut is where it all begins. This is an Irish independent podcast. Hello and welcome to Real Health with me, Carl Henry. Folks, let's talk about sports, baits, nutrition and exercise. What are the biggest mistakes we make when we exercise? Can healthy eating actually harm an athlete with a strict training program? Are energy drinks useful or to be avoided altogether? Processed foods, yay or nay? These are just some of the areas we will cover on today's episode alongside dietitian and sports nutritionist Evan Lynch. Evan, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm very good today. Thank you very much, Carol. I'm delighted to be on. Well, listen, it's great to have you on. These are always very popular episodes with our listeners. People of all kind of fitness levels, all abilities. They're always dying to know the ins and outs of food. Uh, and they always have lots of questions. So we're going to get stuck straight into it. Um, what are the biggest mistakes that you see initially when people start exercising or people change their exercise uh, regime in terms of nutrition? Are they having too many carbohydrates, not enough protein, not enough carbohydrates? What are the, the, the biggest mistakes you see? I think across the board, Carl, maybe where people go wrong is they're carbophobic. And that's a narrative that comes from medical circles. It comes from influencers. It comes from, I suppose, popular media as well. It's quite an ill-informed stance to take if you're going to be very physically active. I suppose for people listening, the easiest way to conceptualize it is think of carbohydrates as petrol and you have glycogen in your body. Think of that as your petrol tank. If you're going to exercise, you can't really do that on an empty tank, or at least you shouldn't. So you, you to clarify, you will be able to exercise if you don't feel well. You're just going to take more of your body to do that, and it can have some knock-on health implications. And I suppose, unfortunately, that's where I tend to step in as a sports dietitian. People will come to me with all sorts of things. I'm going to list a few factors here that you might not have correlated to underfueling and particularly not eating enough carbohydrates. But here's a highlight list. Menstrual dysregulation, erectile dysfunction, stress fractures, injuries, frequent illness, then just general poor performance. Those would be very common things I would see people rocking into the clinic with. And in a very long winded way, that generally comes from not eating enough carbohydrates or not having adequate carb intake around training. So that that time of the day where you really need it. The best description I've come across this to maybe put it in uh, non-nutrition terms, it's like business liquidity. If you don't have carbs on hand, it's like having no cash flow, but expecting to to run a business, I guess. So that's that's probably the biggest thing people get wrong. They're afraid of the bread, the pasta, the spuds. I say go for it. And of course, there's lots of people who do try fasted training, don't they? They, they, they? they read online that it's, oh, it's going to be the magic fat loss, you know, fat burner and all this stuff. And they try and train fasted and then they wonder why they can't train to their full potential. Oh, 100%. Look, don't get me wrong. There is a time and a place for fasted training. It's just not relevant for the vast, vast majority of people. The only time where we could see fasted training or purposeful glycogen depletion where we purposely let that petrol tank empty out is if you're a Tour de France cyclist, think Chris Froome, think Bradley Wiggins, think Stephen Roach, where you have to be able to compete six, seven hours a day, day in, day out. And with that comes this supra physiological ability to spare your glycogen. So if, if you need to be seriously brilliant at burning fat, you probably do need to do a little bit of that. 
most people doing marathons, Ironmans, one-off events, even say like Ross Naman or uh, the, the Ross Talton, you don't need to do that. By virtue of doing endurance training anyway, you're already very good at burning fat, particularly if you actually use the correct training zones. Like if you're in, let's say, 65-70% of your VO2 max, whether you've eaten carbohydrates or not, you're still burning predominantly fat at that intensity. So what, what we know about fat fuel training or doing fasted training is it's going to make it much harder for you to recover the exercise will feel harder. And here, here's something that people aren't aware of. And this is, I think this is a pretty interesting piece of research. If you do fat fuel training versus carb fueled, you get this really exaggerated inflammatory response to that exercise. And with that, your spleen, which is a little organ sitting under your left hand side of your rib cage, for those who don't know, it spits out very high levels of something called hepcidin. And what hepcidin will do is it'll stop you absorbing iron in your GI tract or your guts for a couple of hours. So the reason I'm, I suppose I'm branching out to this, iron deficiency is the most common nutrient deficiency, especially amongst athletic cohorts. And we can generally tie that back to people who do faster training or have low carb intakes around training. They can do the session. It's just costing them in terms of more likely to have these problems namely iron deficiency so i think particularly in endurance sports which is where my i suppose speciality lies because there's such a low level of inertia you can always put one foot in front of the other whereas let's say if you were a weightlifter and you have to lift 100 kilos unless you're at top-notch capacity you're not going to get over that bar whereas runners race walkers it's what i used to do cyclists triathletes figuratively and metaphorically, you can kind of walk yourself into burnout very, very easily. And talk to me about then the ideal things people should have before exercise So and, and the timing of that. So I'm presuming you're going to say around two hours before the session, are you? Yeah, yeah, that's that's one framework we can use. So I, I tend to like to give people a bit of flexibility with their framework because I suppose the, the one size fits all might not work for someone doing early morning shift worker who has little kids or who just doesn't like to get up at four o'clock so they can have their breakfast <laughs> for their run. So I, I tend to think of it as the two dietary transactions before a workout. So if you have two hours, brilliant, two hours pre-session, you want a high carbohydrate meal, but crucially, you want that to be low in fiber and fat. And this is where I can see when I'm giving workshops or talks, people's eyebrows start to raise because I'm standing there as a dietitian saying, no, no, have white pasta, have spuds, probably don't have too much fiber or vegetables on that plate. And it's very important to delineate and distinguish between healthy eating guidelines and sports nutrition. Do you know why it's important not to have fiber and fat in your meal two hours before you exercise, Carl? Presumably it's to do with the digestion, the breakdown of it and the quantity of energy required from the fiber in the gut or something like that. Yeah, pretty much. You can draw it back to gastric emptying rate. So if you imagine my fist here as a stomach, when we drop food into it, different types of food spend different amount of times in there. So a starch-based meal, let's say pasta baked with a tomato sauce, not much else, two hours to get through your gut into your intestines where it's crucially absorbed. That's what we that's what we care about. That's the carrot and stick. 
if you have something like an avocado salad where someone who is doing exercise with a health, maybe a health conscious approach, they might have something like that pre-exercise. You're digesting that for about five to six hours, depending on the absolute fiber and fat content. So if we stop and think about that, if your meal two hours pre-training is too complex, even though you've eaten, you're actually still in a bit of an energy deficit because you've absorbed none of it. So I think that that common phrase we all know, you know, you are what you eat. It's a bit redundant. It's more like you are what you absorb. So from an energetics perspective, the composition of that meal really matters. So to, to bring it back to practicalities, two hours before an exercise bout, if it's the morning time, something like a bagel with some jam, you could have some homemade pancakes. They're quite popular. You could go with overnight oats. Some people find that to be a bit rough on their stomach or I have no less than two Olympic athletes having big bowls of Cocoa Pops. I was just, I was just going to bring up the Cocoa Pops. <laughs> <laughs> you could imagine in particular, that's that's where people start to put their hand up and say, sorry, did you just say Cocoa Pops? And I have to clarify that, you know, in this context, that's actually better for you to do that. And, you know, the, the other thing, and people can be very embarrassed to talk about this, but I, I come across this all the time gut issues, exercise-induced gut issues. Yep. Statistically, 90% of runners get them. 40% of them will have diarrhea or they're, they're topping a fence or jumping into a field to, to relieve themselves. That is almost entirely down to poor choices before exercise. So if you if you go back to the stomach analogy there, when you start running and you have a partially digested meal and, and you're running, it all empties from your stomach into your intestines because it's not fully digested you can't absorb it and i suppose to put it simply it just takes a freight train towards the the exit so you've you've, you've very little control over it if, if you get to that point you you're just gonna end up with that problem so to i suppose bring it back to your question two hours beforehand you you go for those starch-based meals i would then suggest if someone can if they have the time, the ability, the stomach capacity to have something like a banana and a coffee 30 to 45 minutes beforehand, that's usually a pretty good way to go. However, if you're training first thing in the morning due to time constraints, work, etc., and you only have 60 minutes, oftentimes what I would advise is you have your bowl of cereal before you go to bed. So your two meals beforehand, you can do that, get your carpet pre-bed. A 50 gram hit of carbs, which is a bagel pretty much with nothing on it or three slices of toast. That's enough of a dose to stop your glycogen levels or your petrol tank dwindling overnight. And then have something small, maybe a sports drink, maybe a banana, maybe some dried fruit. Give yourself 30 minutes and then out the door. So that's that's how I would typically advise a patient or a client to do pre-exercise fueling. And that brings me naturally actually to energy drinks and sports drinks. So very popular. Uh, you've got lots of brands on the market. There's a new one from from a couple of YouTubers that has really taken off. Are they important? Are they necessary? Uh, what do your athletes take before sessions in terms of drinks? So I suppose if I was to look at some of my patients and clients who might have an underlying medical condition like IBS or IBD, perhaps they have something like short bowel syndrome, something that affects their gut and their ability to digest things, they might not be able to have solids very close to an exercise bout. 
And for people watching, I'm going to represent it like, like this in, in ascending order. You go from liquids to semi-solids to solids, you increase the risk of gut issues. So liquids intuitively are easier on your stomach. So if you don't have much time, but you need fueling, a sports drink is pretty appropriate pre-exercise to help you hydrate and help you fuel up a little bit. Sometimes you do need to take it during exercise if the exercise bout is prolonged and or it's hot and they can be helpful in their rehydration stages of training. Do you want me to run you through some numbers that people might find interesting? Yeah, go for it. Go on. Do you want to, do you want to take a guess, Carl, what the average sweat rate is for an endurance athlete? Sweat rate per hour. Oh, uh, obviously that depends on everything. That depends on heat. Uh, five, 600 mil? 1.2 liters an hour on average. Okay, wow. The range would shock you. It goes from about 400 mils to about five liters an hour. That's the normal sweat range on the on the bell curve. So you could imagine, depending on where someone sits on that curve, depending on how long their session is, there's different, I guess, urgency and reliance on fluid. The vast majority of people can do a one-hour exercise bout with no fluids. They're going to stay within 2% dehydration. And just to clarify, 2% dehydration is losing 2% of your body weight in a training session via sweat loss. You can check it by weighing yourself pre and post exercise. That's kind of our, our aim to, to keep your sweat losses less than that. So most people can do an hour without fluids. Some people can do an hour and a half without fluids, not many. So I would typically advise, let's say I am actually drinking this. It's not just a prop. The, the general advice I would give to someone when they're doing extended exercise bouts using either water or a sports drink, two fingers of liquid every 20 minutes. So two fingers for me is around 125 mils. And that's generally very well tolerated by most people. To come back to your question, though, you know, sports drinks, where do they fit into this category? And, you know, what's my take on them and what do people tend to think about them? Highly appropriate in terms of peri-workout better than water for rehydration. The little bit of sodium and sugar helps with that. It's called Lucasade Sport for a reason. It's not called Lucasade Couch. If you were to drink a bottle of Lucasade Sport sitting down watching Netflix, your blood sugar is just doing that, or at least your body's working very hard to make it not do that, not to skyrocket. Why I'm comfortable recommending high glycemic index carbs, lower fiber items, sugary things around exercise is that we know when someone exercises that their insulin sensitivity increases three or fourfold. Glucose oxidation or your ability to burn glucose increases three or fourfold. And what your body does effectively to any sugar that enters your stream, it hoovers it up into your cells almost instantly. So you kind of have this temporary scenario where you are basically a sugar hoover and where sports drinks aren't causing anything I suppose untoward to happen and it's worth noting that exercise response it hangs around for a while for about 20 minutes after exercise and then for about a day after exercise you're still to a degree insulin sensitized however prime lucasade sport gatorade powerade whatever whatever your thing is probably wouldn't be having it if you're at rest or in a sedentary period of the day just keep the exercise and they get the Thumbs up from me. And caffeine pre-workout? So a lot of the pre-workout drinks have loads of caffeine in them. Necessity or only for certain kind of people? 
necessity for me if you have two small kids Carl, they don't let you sleep i have two small kids i absolutely agree with you it's a necessity for me too <laughs> i have to work out before this talk <laughs> <laughs> it's no wonder you're so energetic evan uh yeah but you know but, but in all seriousness though there are you know, there's a lot of people taking them unnecessary like if you're tired granted okay it's going to have a, an effect obviously but it isn't a it isn't an essential component of, of a workout or is it no i i don't think it is i think um a lot of people like to jump to the maybe the the sexier or more simplistic interventions, which tend to be the tip of the pyramid. It's cool to use pre workouts and caffeine because when you take them, you can you can feel something happening. And by by contrast, taking pre workout or having a coffee, it feels more useful and it's more exciting than having a banana or a bagel. So I, I'm not surprised people rush towards it. It's marketed differently as well. To, I suppose, to point out for our listeners and to elaborate on how it actually works, it's totally perceptual. For, well, I suppose for the most part, it's perceptual. Lots of people through my own work, through the clinic work I do, they'll say, you know, coffee gives me energy and it doesn't. There are almost no calories in a cup of coffee. However, if you ingest caffeine, the way it binds and interacts in your brain, it simply blunts your perception of fatigue. It's like paracetamol, but for tiredness. So you you simply feel more energized, but nothing changes in terms of energy availability. You can just push yourself a little bit harder. So if if I have an athlete who's doing a tough session, maybe they're getting ready for a Dublin Marathon, that's only around the corner, and they're doing a tempo workout or a long run, ideally, we will use caffeine on race day. So for those key sessions that mimic race day, we use caffeine because whilst it can have an impact on performance, it can improve finish time by around 2 to 3%. The risk factors are panic attacks, arrhythmias in some, who are prone to that, and gut upset. That's the most common thing. So we do use them. I tend to favor coffee over a pre-workout for one very, well, two very simple reasons. I'm biased in that I think it's far nicer. And also something to consider the actual food matrix of coffee, for example, it is pretty much chock full of antioxidants, nutrients, things things that you can't really see or you can't get energy from. But coffee itself as a substance is known to have a whole milieu of beneficial effects on your health. And in terms of caffeine content, it does vary an awful lot. A standard barista coffee is 160 mgs of caffeine versus most pre-workouts. They have synthetic caffeine, but you don't get any of that cardiometabolic benefit, that cognitive benefit that comes from that natural food source and matrix. Similar caffeine levels, I think the benefit is more so in favor of drinking coffee if you like it. My other gripe with pre-workout, I've only ever taken it once. Tiny scoop, very high dose. If you're not very attentive to the dose you take, you can very easily get a, not a dangerous dose of caffeine, but enough to make you very uncomfortable. And to to put numbers on it in terms of sports nutrition, Carol, if you're looking for a performance enhancing effect, three to six milligrams per kg of body weight. So I'll use me as an example. I'm about 80 kilos. An espresso shot is 80 milligrams. So I would need about three espresso shots pre-workout to get a performance enhancing effect. So there's there's also that to consider. 
And in terms of timing, I'm sure I'm sure you come across this all the time. People slamming pre-workout as they walk into the gym or mid-set. Generally, caffeine has a, I suppose, a latency period of anywhere from 15 to 45 minutes, depending on how you ingest it, meaning it's probably not doing anything for you for a little while after you consume it. And then it stays peaked for six hours in adults anyway. So you do need to have that caffeine hit a little bit before that workout starts. The closer you take it to exercise, the more likely you are not to get the benefit from it if it's a one hour session, roughly. Let's chat about finally after exercise then. So you've done your session, you've fueled it properly now beforehand, you know nuts of fear, carbohydrates, go for the simple ones pre-session. We've chatted about caffeine, pre-workouts, all of that. After your session then, give people some simple recommendations what they should be eating after a workout. Yeah, so I would say after training, you ideally would preferentially go for high glycemic index carbs. People might be surprised to hear me saying that because the I suppose the general idea is that you should have protein shakes, protein X, Y, and Z after training. We know that's not true. The anabolic window is not, that's not a thing. Your muscles aren't going to immediately disintegrate if you don't have a whey protein shake or four egg omelet within 30 minutes after a workout. So the, the high GI carbs, your appetite might be suppressed. So you could go for something like chocolate milk, the Muju chocolate milk, for example, or the Yazoo. They're pretty, pretty ideal unless you're lactose intolerant, in which case I would typically recommend the soya chocolate milk. It's similar, similar macronutrient profile, easy to digest. If you're not into that kind of stuff or you're maybe someone who doesn't have a sweet tooth, you can try bananas, you can try a bowl of cereal. Again, Cocoa Pops can come into play here, but also things like your cornflakes, Rice Krispies, they're all players in the game. You could try white toast with jam, anything like that, or Rice crispy Square if you're on the go. That's also a pretty practical option. People are going to absolutely love this episode. Rice Krispies and crisp and and uh, and crispy squares and white toast and jam. I love it. But you know, <laughs> the, the, so the key message from the, from today's episode for people is not to fear carbohydrates. The importance of high GI carbohydrates, both in terms of before and after sessions, and that they're really beneficial for you. And if people are new to exercise over the course of the app, we've really brought you through what you should be doing. And uh, it's all very, you know, it's great content. You do a lot of work on Instagram. Remind, remind us of your Instagram account where people can find you. Yeah, it's E-Lynch Fitnut, F-I-T-N-U-T. You can follow me there. I post pretty frequently and I suppose video format content and explain all these types of things there. So if you want some info, that'd be a good place to get me and all the links to my coaching programs, website and all that are there and pretty easy to find. Evan, it's been great to hook up and uh, some great content on the episode. So thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it, folks. That is it for another episode of Real Health with me, Carl Henry. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Lots of great content. Rice Krispies and Krispie Squares. Who knew? Uh, we will see you next week for more Real Health. You know where we are at Carl Henry PT on Instagram, realhealth at independent.ie. And don't forget to rate and review. Slow and go full. We'll see you next week.